Good evening, everybody. I hope you've got a Bible in front of you. We're going to be looking at that uh, passage together. If you haven't had the chance to go up and get one, get one. Um, But we're going to look at chapters 23 and chapter 24. Now, I know sometimes it's hard to sit down and stare at a screen and concentrate. Um, So I'm going to ask, actually, that God will help us not just to do that, but that we might learn from what He has to say to us in His Word tonight. Uh, Let me pray. Our loving Father, we thank You that in Your grace You have breathed out Your Word to us. Uh, that you've revealed your will. So, Father, teach us, rebuke us, correct us, train us in righteousness, that we might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And we pray in the name of Jesus, our Saviour. Amen. Have you ever had an opportunity fall right in your lap? A time when circumstances just present you with the perfect opportunity to gain some kind of significant advantage... Well, of course, when the advantage is just a small thing, let's just say, for instance, a a car car spot opens up uh, during Christmas time right near the doors of the shopping centre. Now, you know, when something like that happens, you go, woohoo, you you, you just drive, you boom, get into that parking spot as soon as you possibly can, you take that opportunity. Then, you know, you might feel good about yourself, then you'll go do shopping, come back in, put all your shopping in the boot, and then you get to feel good about because you're seeing people queued up waiting to get into your spot and you're kind of giving them a Christmas present by giving it to them. Now, now when something kind of trivial like that happens, we think of those moments as really just being in the right place at the right time where we don't read anything more into them. We don't tend to describe them as God-given opportunities, that's kind of overstatement. No, we actually reserve that description for bigger stuff, don't we? Uh, when, when we're searching for an extra justification to do what our mind doesn't feel that easy about. Because sometimes circumstances present themselves and it, it's not so trivial a matter. There is a, a real decision that needs to be made at the heart of it. Should I or shouldn't I? A purchase, a sale, a job offer... Maybe the offer of romantic interest, Uh, maybe something's fortuitously, seriously, just fallen off the back of a truck and you're wondering whether you should pick it up or not. Something happens out of time, as it were, unplanned, unanticipated, unlooked for, and for those very reasons, you haven't actually thought it through and you're faced with the moment and a dilemma. What am I going to choose to do? Has God presented this opportunity to us or not? Shouldn't I? Now, we've titled uh, our series in this second half of 1 Samuel, uh, Two Crowns. And, And the difference between David, who is the king of God's choosing, and Saul, the king of the people's choosing, has, especially over the last few weeks, started to become really obvious. That distinction between the two, in both character and in destiny is going to become even more clear today as we look at chapters 23 and 24 together because both of them are going to face what they both describe as God-given opportunities. So please make sure you've got your Bible open. Now, I need to say that I'm going to focus on chapter 24 today rather than chapter 3, but I do want us to see some very important details in chapter 23 first because in many ways, these two chapters belong together. They form, like, they're mirror images 
of each other and it's actually in that mirroring that that the big message comes through. Now, chapter 3, it shows us a king who is in denial, a rejected king who is in denial. Now, earlier in 1 Samuel, do you know that on two separate occasions, Samuel uh, told Saul, the prophet Samuel, told Saul that God has rejected him as king and he's chosen somebody else to replace him. Twice he said that. First in chapter 13, but then again he does it in chapter 15. And at that time in chapter 15, um, Samuel basically gets a big underliner to kind of say, God has really made his mind up. He says this, He who is the glory of Israel does not lie or change his mind, for he's not a human being that he should change his mind. God's made his mind up. And yet, the Saul that we get to see in chapter 23 still seems to be telling himself the opposite. He's in denial, right? He still thinks, despite his repeated disobedience, despite his um, irrational rages, despite murdering a whole town of priests of the Lord and their families and even their pets, that somehow God might still be on his side. Well, chapters 23 and 24 put an end to that delusion. Have a look at the first incident in chapter 23. Briefly, David, though he's in hiding for his life, he hears about this Philistine raid on a town called Keilah. And so he seeks guidance from God about whether he should leave Keilah and go and, and save the town. And God says, go do it, go save them. But then David tells his his troops and they are naturally terrified. They fleed from Saul themselves and they're reluctant to go. And so David sort of kind of asked God for, are you really sure? And God, this is God's reply in verse 4 of chapter 23. The Lord answered him, go down to Keilah for I am going to give the Philistines into your hand. Now I want you to notice those words because they are going to feature heavily in both our chapters tonight. And so David and his men go up to Keilah, they beat the Philistines and they save the people. God empowers his anointed king, replacement king, David, to save his people from his enemies. That's what Messiah is meant to do. Now, Saul finds out about it. And despite the fact that he hadn't inquired of the Lord, of course, how could he? Because if he went to the town where the tabernacle was, he would just find dead bodies because he killed them all. But look at how Saul amazingly interprets this situation of David saving Keilah. Verse 7, Saul was told that David had gone to Keilah and he said, God has delivered him into my hands. For David has imprisoned himself by entering a town with gates and bars. Saul summons all of the people for war, sort of going, look, if I go down there now, David's trapped and he can't escape. Obviously, God has delivered David to me. Yeah, nah. See, David finds out about the plot. But even then, he doesn't leave straight away. Again, he inquires of the Lord. And, and God tells him that the people of Keilah, even though he saved them, will betray him because they're afraid of Saul. And so he flees to the desert region of Ziph, further south and to the, and to the east. And Saul leaves Keilah alone because he's determined to get David, he's happy to leave Keilah by themselves. But again, what do we read in verse 14? 
Day after day, Saul searched for him, but God did not give David into his hands. You're starting to get the theme. Yet sadly, we read that once again, David faces betrayal. This time from the inhabitants of Ziph and from that region. But they don't need to wait until Saul threatens them before they go and dob on David. They actually go to Saul and sell him out. They tell exactly where David has been hiding and look at what they say in verse 20. Now your majesty come down whenever it pleases you to do so and we will be responsible for giving him into your hands. Now how do you think Saul's going to interpret this? In denial. Verse 21, Saul replied, the Lord bless you for your concern for me. So clearly, Saul still thinks this is, this is God's doing. He's delivering David to me again. And, and notice he still talks like he's some pious mouthpiece for God, even though he's just killed half the Lord's priests. But once again, he doesn't seek the Lord. He actually seeks his information and his guidance from these traitors. And he then says with confidence in verse 23, then I will go with you. If he is in the area, I will track him down among all the clans of Judah. If he's down there, I'm going to get him. Yeah, nah. See, David finds out and he moves on. And then Saul goes to where David was and then David moves on again. And, and, and it just goes on. Saul seeks him here, Saul seeks him there, Saul cannot find David anywhere. And just when he was getting close enough, suddenly a report comes up that Philistines have raided the country and Saul is just within grasp but has to go off and, and, and get rid of these Philistines and take his army, and so he takes his army away. And so you see there you've got chapter 23. But this is what I want you to notice. Two stories about people betraying David. Two stories of Saul falsely thinking that God's delivered David to him. Two stories of futile chasing and two stories of God delivering David in the end. They're just like carbon copies of one another in a sense. And then what do we see sandwiched in the middle in between these two stories? What we see is a very telling and important moment. See, we just heard that Saul couldn't find David anywhere, nowhere, no matter how much information he got or anything. Saul's son, Jonathan, just walks straight into David's camp. He knows exactly where he is. In verse 16, he goes straight to where David is and he does so because he wants David to find strength in God. How about that for friendship? And, And look what Jonathan says in verse 17. Don't be afraid, he said, my father Saul will not lay a hand on you. You will be king over Israel and I will be second to you. Even my father Saul knows this. And David and Jonathan make a covenant with one another. So in between these two stories of betrayal of God's chosen king, you see a betrayal of the people's chosen king by his own son who makes a covenant with the Lord's chosen king. It's a betrayal in the opposite direction. Jonathan knows that Saul is in denial He actually knows that Saul deep down knows the truth but just can't admit it. Jonathan knows who God really favours and who he has chosen to be king. And so we come to chapter 24 and we see the king in waiting. Now we're going to see 
Who is in the hands of whom? While Saul's off chasing the Philistines, David escapes to a place in the wilderness um, called the uh, Engedi Oasis. Now, it's an area of steep, uh, it's, a, it's a valley of steep, craggy cliffs and narrow valleys that surround the coastline on the central part of the Dead Sea, on the western coast of the Dead Sea. And, and, and it is rightly called the strongholds of Engedi. If you're going to hide somewhere, it is as good a place to hide as any. However, once again, Saul gets news of David's approximate whereabouts and so he sets off in pursuit. He gets to Engedi and that's where we're going to pick up the story. And right from the beginning, it's going to be very clear that this story is not going to make Saul look good. Um, have a look at verse 3. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there and Saul went in to relieve himself. So Saul, who's desperately clinging on to being number one, needed to do a number two and requires a bit of privacy. He's not going to get, <laughs> he's not going to get privacy. Um, no, he's not. Because he comes from the glen, bright, white stones of the, of, the, of the limestone near the, the Dead Sea, the glaring lightning goes into this pitch black cave and hidden from sight in the darkness of that cave is 600 people and David watching him go to the toilet. Now, can you believe this? I mean, what a perfect opportunity for David. Squatting just a few metres away, his robes swept behind him, He's checking his Facebook on his iPhone, whistling around. It's the very man that's been hunting them and hunting them and hunting them. Brutally hunting them. One, one well-placed knife thrust and, and the terror is over. And so look at what David's men say in verse 4. The men say, this is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. This is a God-given opportunity, David. All these times, the Lord has refused to hand David over to Saul and now he's done the opposite. He's brought the enemy right there in front of David. God's clearly handed Saul over to David. So this is obviously what God wants. Kill Saul now and the kingship is yours. And so David takes action. But it's not what his followers were expecting him to do. David gets up and he secretly cuts off a corner of Saul's robe. Now it's hard to know what, um, what David's doing here and what he intended when he first set off to, to go up to Saul. Maybe he actually did intend to kill Saul initially or thought, was thinking about it, but then had second thoughts at the last moment. What we do know is this, that in the brief moments that it took him to return from cutting off that bit of robe to where he was hiding, his conscience just hit him like a wave. And this is where we see what kind of man David really was how determined he was to honour God. Look at verse 6. He said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. And so he talks his men down from attacking. Now, now 
just place yourself in that moment. And you can imagine David going back, even as he says this, maybe even second-guessing himself. Here was his opportunity. Should he take it? Had God given Saul into his hands? Would the decision not to take that opportunity haunt him and his men? Limit their days even. What did God want him to do here? Well, David remembered that Saul was still God's anointed king over his people. Yes, David was anointed himself, he knew that, but so was Saul and that was not nothing. In fact, it was very much something. Was it up to David to take it upon himself to king to kill Israel's king by stabbing him in the back and then seize his throne? Would his kingship be one that he's going to claim with the blood of his predecessor, as so often happened in the internal power games and struggles of the nations around them? Is he going to get the kingship by coup d'etat? There was something else in the mix as well, and that is David's own consciousness of his own integrity. David had only ever done good by Saul. You know, when Saul was having his fits of, of rage and, and, and his moods, it was David who played music to soothe him. He honoured him as a dutiful son-in-law. He faithfully fought battles for Saul, even when Saul asked him to do unreasonable things. And yet Saul sees David as a rival. In fact, he said publicly that David is a rebel who is conspiring to ambush him. So wouldn't killing Saul right now suggest to the nation at large that Saul had actually been right all along? That David was indeed a rebel at heart? No. Now, even though Saul was trying to kill him, David was not going to be the one to remove that's the one that um, God had made king over Israel. He was going to entrust himself to God's timing and not take matters into his own hands. But that doesn't mean that David's going to just uh, be quiet about this whole affair. And so what he decides to do is he decides to take a, a very dangerous gamble. He uses this opportunity to demonstrate his innocence of Saul's charges and call Saul out on the unjust way that he's been treating him. It's a very powerful scene. Please have a look at this one in your scriptures as I read it. So Saul leaves the cave and he's only walked a short distance when, verse 8, David went out of the cave and called out to Saul, My Lord the King. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. And he said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say, David is bent on harming you? This day you've seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on the Lord, because on my Lord, because he is the Lord's anointed. And then he holds up for all to see in his hands 
the proof of his innocence. Look at verse 11. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut the corner of your robe but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. So the Lord handed Saul over to David, but it was in order for David to show himself to be the king of God's choosing. One that would be patient and faithful and obedient and gracious and merciful. You see, this was a God-given opportunity, an opportunity to show his worth. His hands will remain clean. But David's speech then develops an edge. In a, in a stinging rebuke, David commits Saul into the Lord's hands. Look at verse 12. May the Lord judge between you and me, and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me, but my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evil doers come evil deeds, so my hand will not touch you. Verse 15, may the Lord be our judge and decide between us. May he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. Well, David's words and the, and the evidence of his integrity that the torn section of robe hit home to Saul. And that reality that he had been suppressing all of this time, the truth that the Lord would indeed replace him with someone who is better than he, that truth that he'd been squishing down now comes to the surface because it can't be denied any longer. He's cut to the heart and he weeps out his confession. Look at verse 17. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just told me now about the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. But what Saul says next in verse 20 is even more amazing. I know that you will surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. See, David resisted the temptation to grasp power the world's way. To his followers, it must have seemed like it was a, a, a shocking missed opportunity. But in the end, David's righteousness, do you notice, was vindicated. And even Saul, even Saul, was forced to acknowledge who truly was the king of the Lord's choosing. He came there to kill David, but he walks away having blessed him. Well, we've heard a lot about hands today haven't we and where David leaves things in the Lord's hands is where I want us to go now as well 
I want to share four reflections for us to take away from this passage. Two are more observational and two reflect on how David points us to Jesus. First, what we see here from David in refusing to overthrow Saul is actually the general position of the Bible when it comes to how we are to relate to authorities. And that is that we honour those that God has placed in authority over us. We don't rebel against them. So have a look at this passage from Romans 13. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honour, then honour. Yeah, but, but what if they're being unjust? Well, I would have thought that that describes Saul pretty neatly. And when Paul wrote those words to the church at Rome, the emperor was Nero. Honouring authorities, though, doesn't mean ignoring injustice. It doesn't mean ignoring oppression or staying quiet about it. In fact, this is especially a privilege that we have because we live in a democracy and that means that it's, in fact, our duty to stand up for those that are being downtrodden. But we don't do it by rebellion or violence. And honouring authority also doesn't mean that we need to remain where we are, passively absorbing abuse either. Sometimes it's actually wise to flee in such circumstances and that's exactly what we've been seeing for the last two chapters of 1 Samuel. David certainly did it. And, and I want to say this explicitly right now about domestic abuse. If you are suffering from domestic or family violence, it is right and just and wise to leave and to seek refuge. Well, the second ethical observation flows out of the first and, and we'll move on from that. And that is this, um, the importance of Christian integrity in the face of injustice. David, did you notice, he, he shamed Saul by responding to Saul's evil with good. You know, immediately before that passage on authorities in Romans 13, Paul writes this in chapter 12. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. You see, you show evil up, you show bad behaviour up, not by being evil or vengeful yourself in response, but by being the opposite. 
You know, when we live with integrity and mercy and patience and kindness and truthfulness, sooner or later, it gets noticed because it can't be denied, just as it was with David. You know, the Apostle Peter writes in chapter 2, verse 12 of 1 Peter, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. But it's this gospel integrity that can help us make our life decisions as well. We've seen today that circumstances are ambiguous. Just having the opportunity to do something does not make it God's will for us to do it. But God's Word encourages us to approach life with a a different set of questions and a different set of goals and simply, does this opportunity work to my advantage? Is it giving me something I want? Because, you see, the Gospel is meant to transform what I desire and the kinds of decisions that I make and why I make them. Does this present me with an opportunity to serve the good of others is a question we ask. Is this opportunity going to help me seek first the kingdom of God or is it going to distract me from seeking first the kingdom of God? Will this in some way help people who don't know Jesus come to know him? See, our questions when we're faced with opportunities are different. You know, in Romans 12 a little earlier, this is what Paul says. He says, do not conform to the pattern of this world but be transformed by the renewing of your mind and then, hear this, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. But this account of David presents more than life lessons and and things like that because David's the Messiah, he's the Lord's anointed, he points us to Jesus. And I think that there are at least a couple of ways that that happens in this passage. First of all is is in David's willingness to put everything into God's hands and to await his timing. David was prepared to wait and do things God's way and in God's time. Do you know one of the very first things that happened after Jesus was anointed as the Messiah at his baptism in the Jordan was when he went on to the wilderness on the western shore of the Dead Sea as well in order to be tempted. And what Satan tried to put before Jesus was power and authority now. Take it now was the message. No no experience of rejection or betrayal. Don't need that. No harassment by the leaders that you know is coming. No need of that. No death on the cross. Do things Satan's way. Acknowledge him. And, and, and Jesus would then have all of that authority, all of that acknowledgement now. He's just got to kind of bow the head to Satan. But Jesus refused to disobey the word of God, but entrusted himself to his Father. The Christ was not going to seize his throne, but he was going to wait for it to be given to him in the proper time and in the proper way. David's majestic descendant was even willing to be placed into the hands of sinful men for them to do what they wanted to do, to be crucified 
And even on that cross, do you know what his last words were? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And that steadfast faithfulness in his father was vindicated at his resurrection. It's celebrated now that he has ascended. And it is why at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And this takes us to ourselves and all who will follow Jesus. In a real way, we're living in a world that's not in a dissimilar situation to 1 Samuel where there are two crowns reigning in the same domain, side by side. You know, one of them seems to have the power in this world, but whose defeat is inevitable. And the other, who like David seems to be vulnerable, seems to be chased from one place of hiding to another, suppressed, silenced, and yet is steadily and progressively building his kingdom. Jesus, the Lord's anointed, is going to reign forever and the ruler of this age is passing. Christ is building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. But in the end, hell will be forced to acknowledge the truth. This is what we read in Ephesians 3. God's intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal promise that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. But the fact that the evil one and all of those aligned in with him are on their way out does not mean that he will go down quietly just like Saul doesn't go down quietly. We've got chapters more of him. We will prevail but in the meantime we still need to entrust ourselves to the Lord's hands. I'm going to finish with these great verses from Ephesians 6. Therefore, put on the full armour of God, so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. So, brothers and sisters in Christ, stand firm. With the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. And in addition to all of this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Let me pray. Our loving Father, we thank you for your wonderful salvation for us in Jesus. We thank you for saving him, for saving us. We thank you for his astounding integrity that meant that he could actually take our punishment for us. Father, now as we live in this world which is opposed to him, but at the same time we are living for him, help us to stand in faith and integrity and in hope. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.